Hi everyone, I'm Alan Miller and today on the Together Talks podcast, I'm very pleased to say that we've got Stephen Jackson. Stephen from Law or Fiction, many of you will be familiar with the work that Law or Fiction has done um, in terms of the judicial reviews, challenging kids jabs, uh, also around masks. Uh, Stephen and I were actually at a, a, a couple of the demos outside the Senate in Wales yeah. all that time ago. That seems like a long time ago now, challenging uh, vaccine passports. Welcome to Together Talk, Stephen. Thank you, Alan. Good, Good to, to be see- here at last. Good to see you. We're actually, uh, just to like contextualise this, we're in Birmingham and we're going to be doing the um, uh, event that we've got later on this afternoon. And so this is great to do this podcast here today now um, because... It just seems that so many things are up in the air in the world and in Britain right now. We've just seen 48 hours of U-turns, disarray. Um, I I suppose one of the things is looking back now, because you've been, I've known you for quite some time now, um, prior to Together Forming, I was doing Open For All, you were doing Law of Fiction, we were kind of, have been in conversations for a long time. It does seem stark, this is just a reflection on things, that on the one hand, we had quite a lot of sort of authoritarianism. But at the same time, there seems to be a lack of any kind of clarity about a vision or a plan or where people want to go in terms of elected representatives. The one thing they were sure about is about imposing things and restrictions and and, and, and treating us as though we're a sideshow. But, I mean, I don't know how you see it, just, just as general thought, as an opener. I mean, the last 48 hours have been quite remarkable. <laughs> right, that's some opener. Um, I'm going to stay away from the rabbit holes and the, the whys, and the, perhaps, but the hows might be more interesting to reflect on. Yeah. Um, yeah, so March 2020, of course, that was when Boris Johnson stood up and told us all uh, the school's going to be closing from Friday. 18th of March, I remember it, he stood up and said, from Friday, gates of the schools close and they won't open until further notice. And that's what we were told was happening. And we assumed because you weren't going to be allowed to put your kids into school, they wouldn't be allowed to open them, then that was what the law was. Well, it wasn't the law at all because he turned up in, his lawyers turned up in court a month or two later and said, no, that was just a polite request. It wasn't a direction or law at all. <laughs> and that's how they continued ever since. And the real worry is actually things haven't changed very much from then. So. Uh, yeah, so a review going back then, what they did was they used the health legislation to lock us down. Uh, Simon Dolan challenged that and the courts threw us out and said, no, go away. It's quite right and proper because it's a pandemic. That was essentially it. And this is, to a large extent, I've spent the last best part of the last two and a half years pursuing cases to try and get people to uh, put forward some reasoning perhaps some evidence, at least so we can understand why they've done this. Um, I can't say we've had a great deal of success, not in the courts at least, um, but we, what we have done is exposed the fact that they're actually not telling us. So there's, I mean, just, there's a few things that are really important there, but obviously around the coronavirus legislation, it was very draconian, but it was actually the Public Health Act yes. that was used yep. to impose lockdowns, and that is still with us. Absolutely. Uh, and if we ever want to see that not happen again, as well as insisting on a proper cost-benefit analysis and everything, and all the damages we see now, yeah. which we can talk about, surely changing that would be an important thing to do. Yes. Um, what we really need, simply, is to, is to have the, the government actually say, do you know what, this can't be done again. Because you've got the power at the stroke of a minister's pen 
to lock us down. That hasn't changed. What, the only thing that's changed since 2020 is public opinion and perception. That's all. But as far as the ability for uh, the government to pave in the same way at any moment, that is still there, still on the books. And so when we see um, threats of you know, emerging monkeypox or some other nonsense like that, or we've got, you know, we're still seeing now as we're coming into autumn and winter, we're seeing these so-called experts and always anonymous experts and, it, and never know how many, but simply experts could be a hundred or maybe two or none, but saying uh, COVID cases on the rise, what it might be some great big threat to our health service. Uh, all it needs is for someone to say it's a pandemic. Yeah. And all of a sudden the minister gets out his pen and shuts us down again. So, I mean, the tyranny of experts, I want to come back to yeah. as well. But just honing in on this, because now, like with a bit of the mayor culpa that Rishi sort of half did and Grant Shapps did, yeah. a lot of people, I mean, even in The Guardian, The Guardian is now saying, well, look at all the damages, look at the impacts to children, as though they weren't sort of tub-thumping and championing the idea of restrictions. But the school's closing is now seen by many people as having been very problematic. And actually in Britain, I say only, it was only a few weeks, because in places like New York, it was really a year, yeah. a year where people were not, and also when they did go back, they were fully masked all the time and everything. But do you, how much do you think, because you mentioned public opinion, how much do you think now things like the schools closing, examples like Sweden not having done it, and demonstrably that, 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 that children weren't impacted, and that, how much do you think that's important now moving forwards? Hugely important. Uh, it, public opinion is the only thing which is changing things or has changed things. We took on the legal cases with support from and together and many people, and thank you everyone who contributed to those campaigns. Um, so important, not because the outcome was disappointing, um, but what we achieved in fact was quite significant uh, because we managed to establish uh, on record what happens in a situation like this and why. And we've got quite clear that this is um, ministerial overreach, effectively, and that's been allowed. We've got it on the record that courts are allowing this to happen. And where we've got to most recently is, and perhaps the uh, culmination of all these cases, is a fairly um, clear implication that the courts will simply not interfere with any government decision, so any direction or any guidance, they won't interfere at all, listen to challenge at all, if that decision or advice is based upon advice of science, of yeah. sci scientists in the background. So mm -hmm. we've got to the point, it's this, it is who's actually ruling us, it's this ruling by the scientists, and the court will not touch it. So, so there is a question though, in a democracy, uh, and we saw it in previous discussions, like around Brexit, right? Yeah. You have a democratic vote, whatever anyone thought about Brexit or not, I don't want to rehash that argument, but where some were trying to use the courts to overturn the democratically decided public opinion, right? So they make a vote, and then people try and use the courts to overturn it, and say, well, it wasn't right. Now, that's not what you've been trying to do, because it wasn't like that everyone in the public was said, let's have a lockdown, mm. or let's do this thing. It's something different, but... How much do you think it should be the case that you should be able to bring a legal case to stop politicians who have been voted in from doing things? Because these, it was an exceptional set of circumstances. But where do you see that? 
that balance? Well, it's, it's vitally important because it's, you've got to have the government separate from the executive, separate from the courts, from the justice system. Yeah. And if it's checks and balances. But what the courts have done, it seems to me and many others, is they've painted themselves into a corner. And so, and as far as COVID is concerned, at least, and I think anything which is, um, is complex science or complex data, the courts are saying, well, hold on a moment, we're just humble lawyers. We haven't got the expertise to look at any of that or understand it or come to any view whether or not it's right or wrong. That's purely, therefore, a political decision, a management decision for the, for the government, for parliament. The problem is they've just stepped away and said, we're not looking at it. And the, the government is left to do what it wants. And at that point, you know, we've got four or five years between any elections. There's no check on the government's exercise of powers in that stage, in that circumstance. And that's why we had, for the last two and a half years, these terrible lockdowns. And that's why we're in this mess now, which no one, no one will actually talk about the fact. <laughs> of course, this uh, 500 billion pounds, whatever it was, blown away on, on COVID paraphernalia and uh, well, we like to talk about those things all the time um, yeah. and, and about the impact <laughs> and the collateral damages, not just in Britain, yeah. internationally, globally, the cost of lockdown crisis, uh, as well as the issues of quantitative easing before and everything. But this really put it on steroids. But I want to come back to this thing about the courts and lawyers being mere humble lawyers and the science and whatever that means, because it's a bit mad, isn't it? Because if you were in a murder trial, you wouldn't say, well, we're not... Um, uh, uh, experts in autopsies or anything. You'd get the evidence, you'd get disclosures, and you'd then be able to make a rational argument and they'd be able to make a judgment on that. And you'd have different proponents. Now, I know, I remember when we were talking about the kids' uh, jabs, uh, that the attempt to engage some of that, and I know that people like Dr. Claire Craig and uh, Ros Maddaman and others have also, you know, with you and, and, and gone to make evidence and... Pro what, what, is that, what actually happens when, when they get in there and they try and make the case? Is there, shouldn't there be some kind of arbitration or like hearing both parts and then a, a viewing made based on a rational decision? You know, isn't that, isn't it, but is that what happens in criminal cases, right? If there's a kind of evidence base, this is how the murder happened or this is what happened with the chemical leak. Surely you have competing arguments and they have to make a decision. The extent of the problem and the, the system we have with judicial reviews, what we're really talking about, is that the court doesn't look at the evidence. It's, it's, it's not a situation where they're saying there's been a crime taking place, what's the evidence, who's done it. This is a question of challenging a, a government decision to say it was irrational, it was completely unreasonable, there was no basis for it whatsoever. And what the courts have given us is an extremely high, high bar and they're given the government an extremely low bar, all they have to do is present something which looks like there is some evidence, some basis for making its decision. And so they, so they never got to the point where they were actually going to look at the evidence. Never been looked at, and this is a huge problem. That's why I think the judicial review system has shown itself to be, um, at least as far as the courts have interpreted their role, it is completely unfit for purpose. It can't change what we're doing. So let me ask you to drill down that a bit more. From a legal perspective, forget what we do campaigning, because you know I've, we've supported the judicial reviews. I think it's an important part of the mix, but we, I would always make the case that, like you said earlier on, that real changes in society have always come about from people demanding them, ordinary people, the demos, the public. Yeah. But from a point of view of legal, 
is it possible to change the process, right? Is, is, if the process is now moribund because they're saying, well, just when it comes to science, we're not going to be able to do it. Um, is it not possible to do a, a review of the whole judicial review process, right? Or is that not possible? Uh, no, absolutely possible for Parliament to do, if Parliament has the inclination. Ah. Of course, Parliament, the MPs don't because they've moved on and they don't perceive the issue and they're all very happy to have had their COVID-19 vaccines, etc. and they don't perceive the problem. Um, but would that be a strategy if the public wanted to demand it? Because it, COVID might... May or may Potentially, not Potentially, but it, it doesn't, to some extent, it doesn't matter what we do. It's the public, my view is, is the public moves its opinion and it makes opinion known. Yeah. And then something else shifts. That might be the MPs in Parliament shift and there's a move towards getting something done. Um, or it might be that um, the courts change their position because, you know, the, the judges, they read the newspapers and watch the telly. So when that narrative changes, when the perception changes in the media in their minds when they have their breakfast before they come to court in the morning, they're influenced, they're human like everyone else. Oh. And I think, what they, I think what we feel they haven't really gotten a grips on, grips, or getting to grips with, is the depth of um, evidence there which says actually these... Um, vaccines have got real problems with them. They're, they're, they're real harms potentially, known and unknown. But they also haven't gotten to grips with the absence of scrutiny by, and the things being hidden by our regulators and by the MHRA. The MHRA, by the way, is effectively um, a, an arm of the Minister of State for Health. So we, you don't sue the MHRA independently, you sue the Minister, sue the Secretary of State. What we did with the children's vaccines in particular, we said, okay, well, you, we know you don't want to look at evidence. We're not asking to look at evidence. Mm -hmm. What we're asking to say is asking the MHRA, what have you looked at? That's what we ask. Can you please confirm that you have looked at, and then it's technical things like lipid nanoparticles crossing blood-brain barrier or effect on menstrual cycles or whatever it might be. Have you looked at these things? And the answer, we got back from the government was, uh, we're not telling you. That was essentially it. It was, it was no comment. Because we said, please admit or deny a very traditional um, form of litigation. Please admit or deny these various facts. Have you considered this, that, and the other? Mm. And the answer was, well, we've just looked at everything. Go away. Ordinarily, that wouldn't be enough. But the courts really said that that was enough for them. So Let me ask you, because in America, the litigation, obviously... The, the, what you described as the split between the executive branch and, you know, the president and everything, the Supreme Court, is, is very much stronger there in that clarity of how they do things. And litigation is a big thing, and it has been in terms of a range of things that have impacted, like pharma and other areas. And I wonder, in this context, if that's always going to be the case here, are you saying that it's a dead end in terms of being able to address it? Or do you see, from a legal point of view there's a way that that can be... Uh, yeah, no, I, I, should, I should finish my, my thread, really, which is going to say that the courts are in a position to respond to the change of information that's coming through the media. When they perceive, when there's a, when there's a general feeling among the population, and that will filter through to the courts, that actually, do you know what, maybe these COVID-19 vaccines or lockdowns or whatever, maybe actually they're 
bad science and they're really not good at all, then maybe the courts will think like we do. How on earth can you justify that? Right. So, what, so on that point, like, so people like Sir Christopher Chope and others have been doing quite a lot of work and they've already had people being paid out for harms and side effects. Yeah. So that is now in the public domain. It's common knowledge. And one of the frustrations I've had all along is that whatever anyone thinks about this, how much benefit it is for certain demographics or not, you can't assess and evaluate something if you can't have an open discussion and scrutiny. And even if it is the case that some people make the point that this is a remarkably successful campaign, it's what got us out of everything, you still have to address the fact that there are side effects and impacts and damages to people. And are they more than that with conventional vaccines or not? And what does that mean? And is that a risk worth taking and all of those things? Because you can't make a decision. At right? the heart of this, everything is a failure to do risk assessments. Right. Now, that has some technical requirements in terms of if you look at health and safety legislation. But it's essentially the same thing throughout. You basically say, what's the risks and what's the benefits? of it? If I do this, what's the risk of that? No one, the government has never published any risk assessment for the lockdowns yeah. or any risk assessments in respect of these uh, COVID-19 vaccinations. And it's one of the main things. So these aren't, you know, I call them the COVID-19 vaccinations especially because, as many people know watching this, of course, they're really a separate technology to traditional vaccines. It's mRNA gene therapy treatment is more technically. Yeah. But it's a new technology. What are the risks? Of that well the fear is of course we're seeing the risk of that are being shown to us now but it was quite foreseeable because right at the start you know many eminent scientists have said there are plausible mechanisms for harms like this to occur yeah they've only been shown right mostly I'm not aware of any significant instances where a mechanism has been shown to be wrong everything's been pushed forward the evidence keeps on building up to saying this is exactly what's happening and these are the problems. But they didn't assess the risk. They've no, and if they have, they haven't published it. So the regulators will not tell us why it is that these massive off-the-scale you know, skyscrapers of, of harms or deaths compared to previous um, reports yeah. um, to yellow card affairs, they won't tell us why. There's nothing to see. So on this note, this is really important. We should all be making the point consistently to MPs, ministers, to everyone that any decisions should always have a cost-benefit analysis, a risk-benefit analysis. And that is even the point about the um, Public Health Act and assessing and evaluating a decision that's made, right? And the COVID inquiry, which who knows when that's going to finish, right? In the next six, eight years. And then, and, and what that and the, and the criteria and the range of terms. But if we get one thing understood, is that we could apply having to make sure you've got a cost-benefit analysis for anything that's done. It just seems so rational and very simple. And that's something that's really important. I mean, one of the concerns is that, you know, people say, oh, it's like a rush, it's an emergency, and you have that all happen all over again. And it's a different government and it's a different situation. Um, is there a way of... Making that, without, I'm not really into just like declaring laws, but I, just from a legal <laughs> point of view, what is there a way that you could, or would it have to come from a political um, uh, influence and impact? I'll come back to where I was, which has got to move the public opinion. We've got to move the opinion of those who represent us first. Yeah. Once that happens, then there would be numerous ways to achieve it. And certainly one is certainly putting it within legislation that, any particular acts always have to be subject to um, 
a cost-benefit analysis, or a, a, uh, and that might be, I mean, to some extent, those requirements are there in some legislation, but they weren't there for this. Yeah. They weren't there for all the for these big things. And the masks was the example. You know, eventually they had to scrabble together some analysis for the benefit of masks, and it failed pretty damn miserably. So let's talk about that. I mean, I just um, I posted recently that um, whilst all this is going on. Um, in New York, people are getting things for their letterbox for uh, vaccines for six-month-old to two-year-olds. And uh, just talk, talk us through a little bit. You did a number of different JRs, right? So yeah. there was for... Uh, the, tell us the age groups, because there were different age groups. Remember, we had 15 million jabs to freedom, and there was like a very high-risk category, and then it became under 60, under 50. Then it became... 20-year-olds, and it's like you can't go to Ibiza or whatever. And then yeah, it became yeah. teenagers, and then all of a sudden we're talking about young kids. What, what, t talk us through it. Well, anyway. it's the 18s and over, so adults and over, so they're not regarded as children. Yeah. So then, you, then the age groups coming down were 16 and 17-year-olds, yeah. and then 12 to 15, yeah. and then moving down, <laughs> because there's lots of money to be made here, then we're down to 5 to 11s. Yeah. We're not yet down at the 6 months to 4-year-olds, but we know there have been discussions about it in the JCVI. Um, so, and this was just when the guy on the FDA, who actually was very pro this jab, <clears throat> said that we should not be doing this for, for children, interestingly, <clears throat> whilst New York is pumping these leaflets out to everyone. But just give us a, just give us a snapshot, and I want to come back to the money bit, but a yeah. snapshot of those different categories. How did they play out, um, the JRs in each of them, just so everyone knows? Well, the... 16 17s and the 12 15s, they effectively merged over time because we, um, with JRs, you have to issue your claim within at most three months of the decision being made. Yeah. Actually, it's even worse than that because that's a very, very short time when you're looking at putting a case together, this complexity. Um, you have to do it um, promptly. So if you're not there within six weeks, the court could say, well, you, you weren't prompt enough. Rather, you look at, look at what the decision was, the impact of the decision being made, how quick should you be? Anyway, uh, as soon as we issued the claim in relation to application of age 16, 17-year-olds, uh, the government then decided they'd roll out for the 12th, 15s. So we had to throw in another application on top of that. So that's what we did, and that rolled along for some time, and there was a bit of back and forth in terms of, because the into trying to, us trying to get things to be done very quickly before the rollouts actually started. Um, the courts didn't give us any grace in relation to getting things done quickly, and anyway, so things took time. And then later on, uh, I forgot when it was now, that, that the 5 to 11s was announced, and so we had to do a separate judicial review in relation to that. So the issues are very much, very much the same, but because of the timing, they had to be pursued separately, and um, you also look at what was the information available to the government at the time of the decision. Yeah. So in six months, things have changed, and by the time the children's came in, I think we had um, Omicron is, was, was around, and basically they were really desperately trying hard to find any possible benefit for this thing to five to 11-year-olds, and in the end it was pathetic. I mean, they, they, couldn't, they couldn't even model a single death amongst all of our five to 11 year olds. And I've forgotten if that was two and a half million or so. Anyway, even modeling, we know Professor Ferguson's at the hand, they couldn't manage to model a single death if they didn't 
jab a significant number of these children. Yeah, I mean, what the argument was used in the earlier period was that, well, it would protect granny. But obviously we know now um, that transmissions are not stopped uh, and infections. And actually, Pfizer's initial report never said it would do that, right? It was in their own report said it was to lessen the symptoms of the actual thing in a particular group, right? So, yeah. but you're quick, and I want to come to mask. Well, let's talk about masks first quickly. Germany yeah. is <laughs> now, has now from the 1st of October, reintroduced masking in public transport and other areas. Um, talk us through a little bit where you got to on masking. We also, this evening, we've got Molly Kingsley speaking, us for them. They did a really good campaign parents of children to stop masking in uh, they were successful in primary schools, not secondary schools. But t talk us a bit through the, the masking situation. Well, uh, that actually wasn't a judicial review case because for various reasons that was going to be extremely difficult right. to know because who's actually imposing this thing? Again, it's a guidance and how are you challenging guidance? That's another big problem. Yeah. Um, so we, we actually, uh, a parent, uh, came to us and we, and we took the school and the authority to court. Um, and the outcome of that was essentially, again, it was the start of a long line of you know, <laughs> get lost. You know. But um, the, what came out of that, at least, is the defence which the school was required to put forward. Right. So if you remember, everyone has been telling their children, wear your mask, wear your mask. You've been detention if you don't wear your mask. All that sort of, and a lot of pressure and then all that peer pressure if you're the only child in a class not wearing the mask, then, you know, you're Billy no mates. It's pretty, it's awful. Yeah. Um, but there was a, a plucky um, young student who was prepared to say no. And the reason why uh, that pupil didn't succeed in the case was because the school turned around and said, the defence was, oh, the child doesn't have to wear a mask. There's no requirement at all, and therefore, and as far as and as far as the uh, peer pressure was concerned, I think the court kind of took the view: well, this is a plucky child, not convinced about psychological damage for this particular child, or this child's representative, and therefore, I'm not going to hold this uh, find in your favour because yeah. it for its ramifications across many many others. So, in some respects, the advantage of that case, and again, this is the the, the public issue of public awareness, it became clear you can just say no. You can give your child the courage, and the parents can have the courage between themselves to say no, we're not doing it. Very important. So we've just seen <clears throat> that um, some of the MPs and others got like no warning, and some ministers got no warning about um, the U-turn that was just done. Um, but we also know that uh, MPs were whipped with three or five minute warnings for things like the next round of the lockdowns and other things. So the question about how things have been done and, and also in a situation where there's a lot of fear being generated, but also also there and unknowns. And you talked about money as well. And I, I, I want to sort of just see from your perspective, because obviously, if you don't mind me saying, you're, you're a lawyer and you've got a legal perspective, but you've also kind of been involved in seeing what's going on on the ground with grassroots campaigning yeah. and that type of thing. And to what extent you think that um, uh, the, the, looking at the situation with how people have just been whipped and everything, that having a strong public and having people, constituents and others, making their voices heard and saying this is a different way to do it, writing in, phoning, 
Sometimes people say it's all passive, there's nothing you can do, it doesn't mean anything, it never changes anything. But we saw with a mandate, right, that there was actually a big U-turn on that and that it stopped. And there's still care workers and there's that question that's still there where we're about to do a campaign on that. But how much do you think that those campaigns are really effective and important in getting the public to really have their voices heard? Vitally important is the legal cases are always going to be difficult, but they have to, but they raise awareness. And they give people hope and they establish a record as to what happens and what's, you know, if, if the case is thrown out, then you know there's something wrong in the system, perhaps, and you've got to find another way. Yeah, and writing to the um, to MPs uh, is vital. Um, all the noise on, whether it's on social media, that's all really important because these things, it's, they just build, it is their noise. Uh, and that's really important. You, you, you know you're not alone. Yeah. And that's, a, that's the main thing. And it's with, it's with the MPs get the mailbags, they know. It's not just one person. There's lots of people thinking like this. And mostly people can't be bothered to get off their arse or turn their computer on to send an email to their MP. So if all of a sudden there's a bunch of people doing it, then they realise there's something people care about. And Absolutely. votes well, is what they're interested in. Votes is what they're interested in. And, and we have already with together over 200 on average uh, mem uh, members in every constituency, signatories in every constituency. So they definitely do listen and hear us. And like last year when we were here at the Conservative Party conference, we... Uh, made a big deal about the vaccine passports yeah. and the mandate, and it was subsequently changed. So it does get heard. But just, you made a point, and people often say it, they say it's all the money, right? Yeah. And I want to drill down on this a bit, because I think one of the problems today in society is that we're not robust enough about making money, about having a dynamic society, about investment, research and development, about creative destruction, around all that kind of thing, right? And people say different things, right? They say, on the one hand, there's this whole plan, and some people use terms like communist or socialist, but then they'll say big pharma, and it's big capitalist, right? Yeah. And it's money. And there's all these different ideas that are out there. <clears throat> Do you think that making, because you said with younger people, there's a lot of money to be made there, and that's obviously true. There's money from things. But, but how much do you think, uh, it's a bit like with MPs as well, whipped quickly, trying to make decisions. How much do you think people who are involved in doing medicine, for instance, they're only got an interest in just making money. It isn't about providing benefits to society. And right. I think for, for the vast majority of doctors, nurses, everyone else and people, they are well-intentioned and money isn't their top goal. That's not quite the culture we have in the UK, certainly. Um, and I don't think that, it's not, the, it's not individual avarice, which is the heart of our problem of the last two and a half years. Yeah. When I refer to money, I'm not talking about individuals. Uh, my concern is, is the um, influence of big pharma and big technology in the background. And I think that is not understood by enough people. Uh, you mentioned fear. We haven't talked about that. There's been a lot said about fear. How was fear um, propagated uh, amongst us? And it was through media, through, the, through telly, through the constant broadcasts and through the newspapers and on social media. Everyone telling you, be afraid, stay indoors or you'll kill granny. Right? Everyone was told. That's who paid for that? Who paid for that? Well, of course, <laughs> our government alone we paid, paid for, paid for <laughs> a certain yeah. amount of that. Our tax money. But how did it, yeah. but how is it come around? If you go back in the, the background as to the science, who's controlling what is the science at the moment? Yeah. Um, I'll digress briefly onto just a current uh, topic, which is the uh, in California, where they've just passed a bill whereby... Um, Doctors can be struck off if they um, 
publish misinformation yeah. or disinformation, right? So we're familiar with those phrases now. Scandalous. Oh, exactly. Coming into our online safety bill, but stay away from that moment, stick back on, the, on this COVID and health business. That's what the law has been passed in California. Where's that come from? Yeah. That seems to come from the, and it's being pushed, and I've seen this for the first time in the UK press, the Federation of State Medical Boards in America. I'm not sure if you're aware of them, an outfit down in Texas, and uh, what they essentially do, um, it seems as they bring representatives of the various medical boards, they bring them down to Texas and they wind them down and have a big conference and they get them to vote through various policies of what they think would be good um, for the state, for the federation to say is a good policy to adopt. Print them all off and then say, all right, encourage them to take them back home to their own states and get them through, pass through as, base, as the basis for their own legis legislature. And so that this, that's what's happened here. You've got the Federation of State Medical Boards have, have basically come around to this view, which have a policy, doctors should not be spreading misinformation or disinformation. And that's what we've seen now in, in California. Who funds Federation of State Medical Boards? The answer is, no one knows except we do. <laughs> it, was, it was actually created more than 100 years ago and with Start not going to the, into the uh, conspiracy issues, but but by Rockefeller, by yeah. Rockefeller family, and that seems to be where its funding is, because it, again, it is hidden. And where are we in the in the UK? We have our um, MHRA, our regulator for drugs and and um, vaccine. Eighty six percent, I think, their funding is from pharma. Now, you ask someone on the street, you wouldn't. I think anyone's going to say that's going to have no influence on what they do. And that's where we get to. And that's so how is it we get to the point that, say, Damien Rain stands up last February or March and says, boasting that in, in, a, in early 2020, she told Boris Johnson, don't worry, Mr. Johnson, we're going to be prime minister. We're going to be moving from, um, from watchdog to enabler. Yeah. We're going to help you push out these vaccines, as they, as they were called. And if you look at actually look at the charts and if you look actually... Um, this fantastic film, you know, A Second Opinion, which uh, Mark Sharman's put out. Within that, there's a fantastic um, clip where Jim Rain is explaining on her, on the, uh, uh, what is PDF, or whatever, you know, PowerPoint presentation. She's explaining, this is how we move things so much more quickly. And it wasn't because we'd done all the research and we proved it was safe and then we just got rid of the paperwork. It's because they cut all the trials short. One of the things on all of this and <clears throat> is a big conversation, but is the hesitancy that now uh, <clears throat> is going to be applied to other forms of vaccinations that have had 10 years trials and have been very successful and impacted with people and a range of other areas. And there is also a deficit increasingly, a, a trust deficit that there was before what happened with the lockdowns and COVID, but that's become uh, amplified. And... I think one of the things about the deficit of trust and everything is it, it, it permeates everywhere. And <clears throat> I think we need to be a little careful as well that we don't just then end up thinking you can't trust anyone. We're having this conversation. Well, what's your interest? And you're a lawyer, you make money. And we charge for tickets sometimes because we make As though there are no... I liked what you said about the majority of people that were doctors and practitioners, that they, they're actually, you know, they have a, a sort of service. They do, they, they're in a career, but they have a sense of responsibility. Because most people, most ordinary people, that is what we, we do. And there's this picture of somehow that we're all like nasty and out of control and avaricious. Well, and what they've done is they're busy 
working, you know, treating patients, doing what they've done for many years, they don't have time to start looking at epidemiology. They don't have time to start understanding the way that vaccines work or mRNA technology works, and the difference is. They don't have time to start understanding these mechanisms by which spike proteins work. So this is all terribly complicated. You and I probably know an awful lot more at a surface level than many GPs do about it because they simply haven't had the time. And so I'm not suggesting that... Um, so I think the real problem is that, is that the doctors have trusted the authorities above them yeah. to so give them the right information. And they, we can't trust them anymore. Yeah. If we can't trust who's telling the doctors, then I'm afraid we can't yeah. trust the doctors either. It's a so, terrible so, so just on this point, so because I know that other people come up like Bill Gates and he's made a lot of money and he's... Based, but your take then, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I hear this a lot, is that the boards uh, or the shareholder, the boards, the big interest in the, some of the big farmers, what you're saying, they then are only interested in money. They're not interested in checks and balances. They're not interested in assessments. If and you look at the board of Big Pharma, there's no duty really for them to look at ensuring their products work. Their duty is to shareholders to make money. I doubt there's very much conversation at the top level as to the um, details, the efficacy of their product. They want to know some basic reports, but their duty is to make money. That's, it. that's, that's what they do. I was surprised uh, that the only um, tests have been on mice for the latest version of the, <laughs> of the yeah. boosters. Um, <laughs> you know, that old phrase, I'm not a zoologist, biologist, epidemiologist or any other ologist, but it, even I can work out that might not be entirely, even though we do do tests on mice and rats and all of that, and then mammals uh, as we go down the road. But um, yeah, so I suppose this all comes to ask you where you think we are now because you know some people are saying we've just seen in the daily mail and the guardian that you know this high rising uh covid i'm not sure that that has that lands with the public right now what everyone's gone through you know i've just come up and no one one person i see wearing a mask and all that. but in terms of where we are with um some fears and concerns and a sense that we're at risk all the time and the state's role is perhaps to keep us safe rather than maybe build motorways or underwrite infrastructure developments, whatever it might be. But what do you think about where we are now and how we move forward? How, how do you see the My landscape? feeling about it, um, it's just my personal feeling, is that the public aren't going to have it anymore. They've moved on from COVID-19 and they're not going to fall for these ridiculous scare stories. There's too many concerns about adverse effects of uh, the jabs which are coming out. Too many people know too many people close to them. So you can't hide that too much. Um, I think there's across the world, it seems to be, every, uh, every day, every week, we seem to be seeing another country which is um, removing the program of these vaccinations for another part of the population. So it's uh, Norway's at over 65. I think there's only they're doing it for now and they're, they're pulling people out and that's happening all over the place. I think so. I think as far as these COVID-19 vaccines are concerned, the impression I have, and I hope I'm right, is that they're on the retreat. It's just a slow retreat. They don't want to tell us they're retreating. Yeah. So what's next? Well, the, the fear narrative, of course, has moved on to other things. We've had of course, you know, get rid of COVID, move on to Ukraine, and then we move on to uh, climate change, which is the perennial favourite. But that's where the focus is. But we're coming to the same 
issue there, which is what we've seen in the last two and a half years, is this assessment of the risks. If we're doing this, what's the outcome? You know, is this, you want to go for, you know, basically you want to go for net zero. Well, what's the net cost so of that going to be? What, let me ask you, when you say the fear... And how are we going to discuss it if you're yeah. hiding the yeah. discussion? So the fear narrative, the but who's doing it is the thing, Stephen. It's a, it's a question that, who's doing it? So let's talk about the environment because that, I think it's... And it's not a new discussion. It's been on the horizon for quite some time. Sort of over the last three decades, it's been building. Where Al Gore did his thing before, and it's been back and forth. When we say the fear narrative, what's the purpose, if, from that point of view, if you think there is a purpose? Who benefits? Why is it being done, right? What would you, from your take on this? Well, now you're taking me into the well, bigger right, realms, so, aren't yeah. you? But there we are. But, well, okay, so, I mean, just, I wonder, because when you say we move from COVID onto that, it sort of directly implies that that's... Yeah, okay, well, what, well so where... Is it the is, government? I mean, like, there's been a green agenda on their manifesto, they got a mandate to come in, and part of it was a green section of in it, right? So that wasn't, that wasn't um, smoke and mirrors, that was there, right? Okay, I'm, well, keeping this very short, yeah. Um, and this is a discussion which many people are having, but certainly not on mainstream media, et cetera. Yeah. But, you know, you say, is it the government doing this or corporations? Well, uh, I don't really buy into the idea that the two are that separate. Right. That's my problem. And one of the things which um, most stuck with me from when Dominic Cummings did his seven hours to uh, one of the select committees, I think, in Parliament. Yeah. And he said, well, and he was rather uh, extremely impressed by what he called the Bill Gates uh, type people. Yeah. Those were the people, he said, had come into the government and were giving them the advice as to what to do. Yeah. So the Bill Gates type people, that's not people elected by the British people. These are global players yeah. from outside. Right? So our government was following the advice and instructions of outside players, global players. Mm -hmm. Who are those? That's so Bill Gates, because is an individual we know, because it's been doing Melinda Gates Foundation, etc. Yeah. But you can then, then we go off to WF and, and where they all meet and where the big boast about that is that, you know, from Klaus Schwab, that he's infiltrated all the cabinets of major governments and in Canada more than 50% uh, of how he has our, you know, young global leaders from the World Economic Forum. Yeah. Now, these are, you know, you can get into your Delling Pole um, conspiracies, which are fascinating. Yeah. And I'm not saying right or wrong, but leave that aside. Don't, don't go, just stay at the top level. Yeah. At this very top level, there's a real concern here, a real problem. We've got corporations uh, in government. And who's actually calling the shots? And I think it's very unclear as to who's calling the shots. Well, on that note, you've done a great plug for our next event. It was actually in London on the uh, 24th of October called Is a Great Reset Inevitable? And... I, you know, I'm rereading a lot of things, like I'm reading The Great Reset and The Great Narrative and The Fourth Industrial Revolution. Yeah. I'm not sure how many people have read those things. There's a lot of people who talk about things, but um, I'm often impressed by how many platitudes there are in there and how vague they are. And also some things that I would agree with, by the way, which we'll talk about at the event. But um, the one thing that, it, that they all have consistently in them is this uh, sort of consensus, this notion on the environment that somehow there's a kind of an agreement that we're already at this spot and we just have to go further. Um, and I, but, but for, you know, so it's really interesting and I think we could, we, without labouring it, we can talk more. But big business and big industry has always had a say in society. That's not new, right? I mean, I know there's a separation of power, there's editorial control, but one would be a fool to think at any point in the 20th century 
the interests of big business and capital did not play a role, right, surely? Yeah, but I think, um, and I'm not an expert in this area, but there are, uh, I mean, if you look at Asim Malhotra's recent paper, um, which he did a presentation with the World Council for Health the other day, he touched on it in there, which is the influence of um, big business in our universities. So I mentioned the MHRA, but let's go back a step. I mean, look, at, look at who staffs MHRA, who are the, who are the professors and doctors who, who are seconded to there. Um, look at our universities, who's funding that, who's deciding what papers get published and what don't, who's funding our, you know, the journal publications like BMJ, whatever. Look at, look at all that. Yeah. And that's where the influence comes in. And so if you take it back the last 30, 40 years, I think the concern is, as I've understood, it's been a, a really quite significant increase, a ramping up of the, uh, the funding of our institutions yeah. and, and control. And so if you, want to, if you want to say something which is against um, the COVID vaccine narrative, you probably won't get the funding for it or your paper will get pulled or you just won't find it's published. I mean, yeah. we've, we've seen that. We've seen papers by eminent uh, physicians uh, being peer reviewed published and then all of a sudden pulled because they, they said the wrong thing. And, you see, and, we, and we see the same thing, I think, in relation to uh, climate change. There's no, dis no, there's no discussion. We're being held back from understanding actually what it is that um, many scientists say. You know, we're being told, oh, there's a massive consensus amongst, um, the against scientists about global warming, etc. I haven't seen that. I've heard it said, but no one can actually tell you where that consensus exists. Yeah. Who are these people? Well, it, well, it's interesting that up, up until not so long ago, the big consensus, uh, or concern at least, was around global cooling. Um, but that's yeah. a, for another day, that conversation. But just, I think multinationals yeah. and big industrialists have always had a big influence on, um, on society and, and politics, particularly in America as it happens, but internationally. But I think what's missing today is a strong, robust public that is clear about its ideas and politically and holding different influences in check, right? And in a way, I think that's what's missing. What we've and, and that is also speaks to some of the things we've seen in the last 48 hours here in terms of perhaps lack of clarity of vision of explaining ideas both to members of your own party, but also to the public and having that public debate, right? And also more broadly in some of the attacks on free speech and censoring and pull downs, because I would always make the point and this is the point, I think, um, that, you know, if you think Dr. Malhotra is right or wrong, as a journalist, you have a responsibility to scrutinise and discuss and debate and open it up and evaluate it. How much of this is an issue, how much of it is not. And we need much more of that for the public to be able to make decisions. Um, and also, we still, we got to be able to trust experts. I've got to trust you when I come to you as a lawyer that you have studied, you do know the law, and you're going to do that. Sometimes you get better lawyers and worse lawyers, right? So people find that out. But there's got to be an element in which we trust some of the people who are experts as well without having the tyranny of experts, right? You do, but what we're talking really about uh, is free speech and the debate. The debate hasn't happened. You have um, Asi Mahotra's um, paper, for example, seen seen actually very important. He was a, he's, he's, a, he's a fellow who had the vaccination at the start, um, he was, and he went on television saying, actually, is it worth having? I support them. He's done his journey, he's done the research, and he's really actually went research. When I look at the evidence, he's had to come to a different view. And what he set out is a review of the evidence over, over the last uh, couple of years. Um, and 
that's set there, it's, it's really quite plain to say actually there's, there's some problems, but it's a debate. Yeah. And what's not being allowed is debate because people who, talk, who seek to question the, um, the COVID-19 uh, injectables, the people who, who actually say, can we talk about the harms which appear to be um, coming alongside it, mm. they are still being um, labelled and smeared as anti-vaxxers and all that sort of nonsense. And the problem is it's the fear. It's the same thing across all these debates. You can't, you're not allowed to say anything which, is, which questions a belief in global warming, for example. Um, if you challenge that, then you're, you know, you're a climate change denier, no. climate denial, that Terrible nonsense. It's the... so, so on that issue, we're going to be, um, the, the online safety bill is something we've campaigned around for a long yeah. time, and we're going to keep doing that. We saw what happened to the Free Speech Union and us for them on PayPal and yeah. Law or Fiction. Yes. What, what is the situation with PayPal and Law or Fiction? Well, Law or Fiction is still persona non grata with PayPal. Um, they, uh, they emailed to say, uh, we're cancelling the services, you can't receive or give money um, because uh, we don't like, or because of the nature of your activities. We reviewed the nature of your activities. I said, well, what activities? <laughs> yeah. What's the nature of what we don't like? Um, just give us a clue. Uh, silence. And so I've sent in a, um, a data request to see what they have about me personally. Yeah. Um, and we'll see what comes out. So we need to make a bit more noise about law of fiction and PayPal as well. And we need to all rigorously challenge the online safety bill because it's terrifying, this discussion, that somehow you can just immediately be taken down from the public square, which is effectively what's happened. And we, what we've sort of all been saying is that we need to make sure that there can be a ruling that legal free speech cannot be uh, discriminated down, cannot be taken down. Well, that's why I mentioned the Federation, uh, the state medical boards. That's exactly what's happened. Doctors here who actually, so like Dr. Malholtra, for example, who gives a different opinion, having looked at the evidence, you know, eminent cardiologist, yeah. he could be taken down and have his um, license removed if, he, if the government of the day decides that whatever he said is contrary to their view and therefore amounts to misinformation or disinformation. Yeah. And what would happen now? So you could never have said, actually questioned whether or not the, um, these COVID-19 vaccines stopped transmission or stopped infection. If you said anything different, you could have your license removed. Yeah. It's only because people have spoken up, been able to spoken up, yeah. speak up, that things have moved on and the public have become more aware of the truth of the matter. And I've noticed that um, Jay Bhattacharya, who we also had on, we had him on with um, Dr. Seema Holtra a while ago for Together Talks. Um, he's uh, got involved in a legal case to challenge uh, some of this in the United States yeah. as well. They are very protracted and tricky, and they're often away from the public realm, even though they're kind of part of the public yeah. realm. I think, unfortunately, in America, politics has become far too much about lawyers. Their senators and their congressmen, often it's all just lawyers doing law, trying to change this bit of yeah. law. But actually, we also see the problem it's taken the form of the culture wars, and you can't have a conversation about anything unless it gets in that. Um, but just winding up now, just to, to say, what's the future for law or fiction? What do you see where we're going? And any other like, final thoughts on, on where we're at and where we're going? Well, law or fiction started off as an information service, effectively, to explain what's the difference between what they, t what they present as being law, but that's just a fiction. It's really no more than guidance at best. Um, after about a year, 18 months or so, by that time, people had made their minds up. Frankly, they don't care what's law and what's guidance. They decide, I'm going to do this or do that. 
I make my own my own choice. So that was that's great, really. So no point in giving information people don't need. Um, moved on to dealing with the judicial reviews and other campaigns. What we're looking now to do is to try and help more of the doctors to speak up. Because talking about this free speech issue, that's really that's at the heart of this. So if we if we can't debate things, yeah, then there's real risk of tyranny. There's real risk that um, people are harmed because they don't know the truth and because someone with whose only interest is money in the background, selling the latest drugs or latest vaccine. That's what gets through, despite the harms. So we have to have free speech. We've got to allow doctors to speak up. And doctors have got to be able to come forward and say, actually, do you know what? Maybe um, I don't want to be recommending this particular vaccine for my patients. Or maybe it's a bad idea. Maybe lockdowns were bad. And maybe I should have spoken up sooner. You know, there's, as I said, the doctors, um, for a large part, they've trusted those who gave them instructions, they need to be able to say, actually, you know what, um, maybe there's, there's something wrong with the system. And so what we're trying to do is maybe look at a, a vehicle or some support mechanisms to allow, well, whistleblowers is a, you know, that's, that's a t one, for one phrase to use. Whistleblowers certainly, but more generally to facilitate discussion and allow people, doctors to do so safely without fear of being disciplined for it. So we're very much believers in the uh, antiseptic of light and reason and rational discussion uh, being shone on things. And uh, without freedom of speech, we have no freedom. Um, I want to say thank you, Stephen, because it's not just for coming on here and doing this, but it's actually getting to know you and seeing you. Uh, it, it really helps. It gives me a sense of strength. And, you know, when you've got people who are professional and good and all of that, come out and say things and they know the law and everything it's you've you've made a significant contribution um to uh people who wanted to challenge lockdowns who wanted to stand up and make a difference so i thank you for that and i thank you for joining us on the together talks well thank you lots of us are out stay together alan then we'll get there in the end we will indeed and just to say um uh we're going to do our next event again on the 24th of uh, october that's is a great reset inevitable it's not a one word answer <laughs> either way we're gonna have a really big discussion on it and we only can keep going through our membership and you've been really fantastic and uh, is going really well. But we'd like to invite more of you who are signatories or supporters or just see us from time to time to actually become a member of the Together uh, Association. Uh, it helps us to campaign. It helps us to put events on up and down the country and it helps us to expand. And we've got local and regional and national ambassadors now. We're here in Birmingham today. We want to be doing events all the time in all the towns and cities up and down the country. And we're increasingly having our voices heard, and that's up to all of us, but it means that we can make a real difference. And there's a bit of a vacuum, we think, in terms of like the old ways of doing things, right? And the, uh, you know, we, a couple of conferences, party conferences, and we see a lot of the, the cracks and the gaps. And I think this is an opportunity for everyone who really wants to make their voices heard and make sure that freedom is front and center, which a lot of people don't want to talk about. Uh, and being a member is a really good way that you can help us do that and also get involved and let us know if you want to become a local ambassador regional uh, and do an event in there so thanks and once again thanks a lot Stephen cheers Anna